This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Barnum Mechanical, a full-service design build firm specializing in turnkey process and utility systems for the brewing industry. You know beer. We know breweries. So today's a very special day for the Master Brewers podcast. We're about to record episode number 100, which is pretty cool. So, um, yeah. And uh, we, thought, we thought what would be a better way uh, to celebrate than to do a live recording here at the Brewing Summit. on the show, we're live from the Brewing Summit in San Diego, California. Here with me is current technical committee uh, chair, Andy Tavikram, and he's going to introduce the keynote speaker. Welcome everybody. Thank you for being here this morning. It's my great privilege to introduce our keynote speaker this year, who is a native of San Diego, so if you're from this area, he's certainly no stranger. Uh, but uh, Tommy Arthur is a native of San Diego, and he's been in the San Diego brewing scene since first getting his boots wet in 1996. Since then, he's spent his years chasing flavor-driven beers and through the exploration of oak and barrel aging experiments. Uh, today, he works as one of the co-founders of Port Brewing, the Lost Abbey, and the Hop Concept, a three-headed monster brewing operation that opened back in 2006. And uh, Tommy, uh, notably, is this year's recipient of the Russell Shearer Award for Innovation in Brewing, uh, presented by the Brewers Association. That's a Lifetime Achievement Award, so uh, that's a pretty impressive feat. Please welcome Tommy Arthur. I'd like to point out it's 9 p.m. in Belgium. <laughs> All right, well, I have a confession to make. I got a D on my fifth grade science report. Yep, a big fat D. So I'm truly not really sure why I'm standing up here in front of you today. I'd like to give the NBA and the ASPC a thank you for putting me in a room full of people who I'm pretty sure are a lot smarter than I am. I have a second confession I want to make today. That is my father was actually studying to be a uh, chemistry major in college, and he and his team failed their thesis. So I'm pretty sure that failing in science is in my DNA. <laughs> a couple of quick housekeeping things. Um, when I was little, I wanted to be a baseball player, so I apologize today for some of the analogies that I'm going to make. And I actually coached Little League Baseball when I was uh, younger, and I wasn't a very good manager. A lot more Charlie Brown than Charlie Hustle, but baseball was something that I was very passionate about as a kid. So, so it's been said that life's a journey, and if you've ever owned a Volkswagen, you know the drill. Sometimes you have to get out and push. Alright. Hooray! 
college, and it was great. I'd like to think that there's some pretty smart people in this room, and if you are the smartest people that I know, I'd ask one of you to maybe create a uh, Wayback Machine, and if you could please dial up that machine to the year 1991. That's when I got to college. I left San Diego and landed in Flagstaff, Arizona, home of Northern Arizona University. At that moment in my life, I knew that I had chosen to pursue a degree in English. Ultimately, I wanted to be a high school English teacher. This was an important turning point in my life. At 18 years of age, I knew that I wanted to embrace the arts, and most importantly, I was never going to be a scientist. Of course, some of my fellow classmates went off to pursue becoming doctors, scientists, or even aerospace engineers. In this way, many of my fellow classmates were embracing a more scientific path for their futures. Yet I am certain that each of us chose things that engaged our senses the best. But a funny thing happened along the way. After graduation, I found my calling as a brewer, and suddenly everything I was reading was telling me to be more focused as a scientifically-based individual. So I guess that's how I got managed to be up here today. These are my friends, artists and scientists, every single one of them. Maybe some of you work for them, maybe you've partied with them, but they embrace both art and science as a way of making beer. So let's talk about it. How is it that a guy who was an artist first with a degree in, in English stands up in front of a room full of scientists? Hopefully, by the time I'm done with this beer right here, we'll all come to understand how that came to be. In choosing to pursue a degree in the arts with an emphasis in English, I effectively announced my passion for language. My focus became rhyme, rhythm, and all things prose and poetry. I absorbed that like a sponge. I assume many of you did the same in your, in your college careers. For we were set free to chase passionate pursuits, and every class I took affirmed that I had made a great decision. Each new professor taught me that the importance of language is found in its ability to connect feelings. Science, too, has its own language. Words like polymer, lignin, cellulose have specific meanings and offer insight through their context. In this way, it behaves just like our primary spoken language. But science is also defined by rules and favors repeatable processes. At its core, it seeks the predictable, where art strives to amaze through creating new points of impression. I've always felt that we could all learn to be scientists, but not all of us have the ability to suspend the right amount of disbelief, allowing true artistry to be explored and skillfully executed. Every morning, I head off to work. I arrive as an artist looking to make impactful, bold, and flavorful beers. But a curious thing happens when I start my day. My language immediately turns to the science of brewing. Conversations with my colleagues at work ensue. What is the forced fermentation of the beer and fermenter number three? Does anyone have thoughts on what caused the elevated apparent extract? How did the bottling line startup go? Did we resolve the issues with the dissolved oxygen? Our gehaltometer was recently serviced. Is it, back to, is it back to reading correctly? Did the plates show any growth for anomalies on the barrel beers we're packaging next week? The list goes on and on. But my English degree is pretty much worthless in these situations. This much I know to be true. Best case scenario, I can use my degree to write haiku-like beer labels from time to time. Or if I decide to publish our company newsletter in iambic pentameter, you know, just to stay sharp.
Maybe this is what happens when an aspiring artist thinks he's a brilliant scientist. Or it's what occurs when a scientist embraces their inner artist. Either way, there are disasters lurking in front of us if the right processes are not employed. Thankfully, science is rooted in discipline. Can you imagine if one of my employees in our quality department came to me and said, I know I'm supposed to use methylene blue when we're determining cell viability, but lately I'm an artist who likes to think outside the box. So I created some methylene purple couche. I can hear my quality manager now. And suddenly the counting of the cells was so much more ethereal. Boom, my mind is blown too. Artists and scientists both need discipline. I studied something called liberal arts, but I doubt any of you studied liberal sciences. While the sciences teach us how to build things, it's the humanities that teach us what to build and how to build them, and they're equally just as important. There seems to be a sense that choosing the humanities for a course study is the easier path in life. Maybe it's because art is so emotive and science is supposed to provide defendable proof. The arts give us context in our world. They teach us how to think critically, they are purposefully unstructured, and the sciences are purposefully structured. In doing so, the arts teach us to persuade. They give us a language which we use to convert emotions into thought and actions, and they need to be on equal footing with the sciences. That being said, I'm not expecting any of you to rush out and employ a staff philosopher to concern themselves with existential questions like if yeast feel more pain from any barley wines. Nope, that would be ridiculous. Well, would it? It is also worth remembering that the cultural divide between art and science is a relatively new one. For much of human history, the two fields were not oppositional, but collaborative. This relationship reached its zenith in the Renaissance era, whose most famous artist, Leonardo da Vinci, was also a scientist. Art was aligned with religion, but it also explored the natural and physical world. Question. Art is? Answer. Hopefully sometimes the thing we can all agree on. I'm a father of two daughters. I'd like to think this is a highly artistic piece. Perhaps one day it'll end up in the Louvre. Any of you from the Midwest? How about this? Highly artistic piece of sculpture, very famous, the bean. Pablo Picasso. I was taught to be a very successful brewer. You had to understand perspective. In my world, perspective meant brewing science. If we learned brewing science, we could work at bending it and thereby create new directions and flavors. Still, all art relies on foundations, even abstract art. Some say that art is life's greatest luxury. Do we really need it? As scientists in a room full of brewers, what is the role of art? Maybe art is the greatest science in that it has infinite room for experimentation and exploration. Picasso seemed to think, that art is a lie that tells the truth. Yet the arts remain an artificial creation of man, albeit a creation which has its beginnings in science. Science in our lives is everywhere. What we do with it in our daily lives is the matter at hand. I don't think I have to tell this to a room full of scientists in the brewing business. So does art pick up where science leaves off? Is art the intersection of what science can't do? In a room full of scientists, what is the role of art? Does it have a role? And from my perspective, it better. 300 years ago, brewing was a skill rooted in mysticism. Much of the process was shrouded in mystery. 
Little by little, science chipped away at that aura, demystifying it, while seeking to define parameters and deliver predictable results. Thank you all for that. Without your passionate scientific pursuits, there may not be the level of artistry being explored and brewing today. In your truths, we've been able to elevate beer into something we can now control at the highest levels. As scientists and brewers both, you've framed our perspectives, given us the foundations to break the rules, smash the norms, and seek bolder, more incredibly interesting beers. Today, science explains the process and drives quality and consistency. But it is the art that gives us a continuous supply of unique and interesting beers. Yet I suspect even as scientists, you must agree, there are larger, less predictable forces at work in our daily operations. You have not successfully answered every question. For in every great new artistic expression, we are building on the movement, blurring boundaries, and charting new directions. And ultimately, this means more work for all of you. Hooray, more work for you. <laughs> Supervising brewmaster Henry Hudson shared these thoughts in a foreword he wrote for the 1977 MBA publication, The Practical Brewer. Brewing is not an exact science. In spite of many technical discoveries and improvements in equipment and methods, the brewmaster must still have a nice sense of touch, of balance, and judgment in the use of his materials and equipment. Have you ever wondered why cooking is considered art and baking a science? It's curious, isn't it? So does this make brewing purely a scientific pursuit? I suspect one could make this argument. I find it fascinating that brewing literally starts by launching enzymatic reactions in motion. It's almost like our own personal Big Bang Theory every time we start mashing our grains. Neither wine nor meat making has this requirement. No enzymes are required to produce fermentation. Grapes merely need to have their skins pierced and honey solely diluted to a lower bricks in order to start fermentation. But brewing requires far more precision than this. Much of brewing has historically been based on trial and error. Many of our operations are done a certain way because it's always been done that way. Science has yet to build a better mousetrap for these processes. As we all know, yeast was not part of the original Rhein-Heinzgebot. Batch-to-batch inoculation was found in the revered magic stick. Lacking instrumentation to measure at safe stirring temperature often meant using the rule of thumb. This was the temperature at which the magic stick could safely be placed in the sugary solution. I'm sure it worked for the most part. But this wasn't good enough for the scientists. Better was definitely possible. Now we have measuring instruments and proper pitching temperatures. So goodbye variability. Essentially, you and your colleagues have spent the better part of the last 100 to 150 years working out the science of beer because everyone strove to make things more predictable. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. This episode is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers.
now back to the show. today. So how has science impacted me as a brewer? It always starts with the basics. These are the standards we use in our brewery every single day. These are the things like 180 degree F sanitation principles and how boiling the liquid makes it sanitary. It's the reason that the beer in the Middle Ages was safer to drink than water. But do things change if you create a super boil? What happens when you launch hot granite rocks at a kettle already at boiling temperature? This is Hot Rocks Lager. It's the culminations of wanting to do things a little bit differently. This is a beer we've produced at the brewery and it invokes the old Steinberg process. So this is a Hot Rocks Lager. This is our spring seasonal from Cold Brewing Company. Uh, one of my favorite pieces of artwork that we have. Each year we make a batch of Hot Rocks in the spring. This is the third batch, uh, the third year in a row that we produce Hot Rocks. We basically put the rocks in what we call Swiss cheese cakes and heat them over propane burners. Uh, we're able to get the rocks to about 600 to 700 degrees uh, with the kind of process that we're using. Uh, some of the German brewers and other people have done this might even get them up over 1,000 degrees. What we have in the hot rocks water that we're producing at Fort Brewing is sort of an ode or a nod to the Germanic tradition of the sign here. Uh, we are taking and calling it a little bit of a hybrid process. Hybrid because we actually do a full boil. And at that point, we take and super eat some granite rocks um, out on the loading dock, and then we go ahead and pull those rocks inside to the brewery and add them to a vessel and bring the work from the kettle itself, uh, causing a secondary boil or a super boil uh, that takes place after the original boiling of the beer itself. It's a loosely defined uh, German Stein beer. The Stein beer process is an overall method. They needed to be able to, to produce uh, heat, where they had to be able to apply heat to the wooden brewing vessels. So they would superheat granite rocks and then add those rocks to create a boiling wood. And that aspect of that addition of the rocks going into the wood would cause a super caramelizing, uh, really hot source of sugar uh, that you can't get from a normal brewing vessel or a normal brewing system today. Uh, the recipe was a collaborative beer that we produced with Tanya Cornett. She is the head brewer at Ben Brewing Company in Bend, Oregon. This is an old And we thought it would be great to celebrate the 2008 World Beer Cup Award that she won as the small brewmaster of the year for the brew cup side of things. In 2008, we won the small brewery of the year award here at Fort Brewing. So we thought getting those two breweries together and producing a batch of beer to celebrate that would be a really great experience for both breweries. You'll notice it's a really dark beer in the glass. It's not uh, not easily seen through. It's an unfiltered beer with a lot of uh, a lot of German dark caramel malts in it, uh, a lot of Munich and some Illinois malts as well, made with a lot of yeast and uh, a little bit of noble hops. It's not designed to be overly sweet. Uh, should just have a real nice uh, drinkability to it, a real nice malt character without too much of a hot finish. We do find that the rock. The actual process of the sign here, adding the hot rocks to the beer does give it a little bit of a coffee, uh, some of a little bit of toffee, a little bit of a nice sweetness to the beer that we can't get uh, from some of the other beers that we produce. So uh, that's what we've got for hot rocks. Enjoy it. Cheers when we have mine. So we talked about the basics. 
One of the things that we learned in brewing science was that there's this thing called the Mallard reaction. And suddenly, making toast, campfire marshmallows, and grilling steaks become visual reminders of the process at work in something other than brewing. During one point in my career, I became heavily focused on using non-traditional brewing sugars, sometimes even creating them by altering their physical makeup. So there's a question, could we make a beer darker or seem darker in color by gains made from non-malt additions? Let's see what we've got. How's it going kids? My name is Mark Rodriguez, I'm head brewer for Brewing Lost Abbey, and today we're brewing the Ten Commandments, which means we need to play with fire. So today we've got a brewing made a glass of our Ten Commandments Ale. Uh, Ten Commandments is a dark farmhouse style beer. This is one of three beers that we make here at the Lost Abbey that features raisins in it, although this is the one beer uh, where we've taken the raisin essence of the beer and gone one step further. Uh, the beer features caramelized raisins, taking from the cooking world, uh, where you have onions which are very raw and very uh, flavorful, which you can take and, and caramelize the, the onion and change the, the flavor of the onion itself. We've done that with the raisins as well. We take our hop back, we load it up with 90 pounds of uh, coffee raisins, we take a uh, flamethrower, and we braise the raisins, if you will, um, get them nice and plump, kind of, Folks have kind of caramelized them and pulling out some different flavors. After we've uh, flamed the raisins, we add a pound of sweet orange peel and three ounces of rosemary. So right now we're adding the work from the whirlpool into the hot bag to top it up and it'll steep for about 15 20 minutes before it gets transferred into the fermenter. I believe we started brewing this beer at the Pizza Morning Slot Beach back in 1999 or early 2000. It was part of our SPF series, but this time uh, the beer would have been released as SPF 8. It was originally designed to be a spring seasonal. Uh, the SPF 45, being a red barn recipe that we produce today, was released as a summer seasonal. So originally when we opened our doors in 2006, I imagined taking the old SPF 8 recipe and translating it into a once a year beer. And we wanted it to be our, our anniversary beer each year. So we targeted uh, a release in, in May or June of each year to celebrate the anniversary. Over the years, the Ten Commandments has been one of the more problematic beers that we've produced here at the Lost Abbey. And as such, it's always had sort of a floating release date. Ten Commandments is one of the most sellable beers that we produce here at the Lost Abbey because of the wild yeast component, the Britannia Isis flavor, the evolution of the hall. The notes that come out of the beer over time are honey, a little bit of the, the, the bitterness from the rosemary as well, and some of the orange peel comes up. So uh, the cellar versions of this beer have a, have a real, uh, real nice long finish to them that is sort of takes away some of the sweetness from the early production batch, and over time drives the beer out and really makes it quite, quite special. So the recommended serving temperature for this beer would be about 48 to 55 degrees. Wants to breathe in a nice wine behind a glass, gets a little bit of air on it, lets it open up. Uh, this is a beer that really, over time, will, will evolve but needs Need some time out of the bottle to open up. So we talked a lot about sugars. What do you say we talk about enzymes? How about beta amylase? As an artist, I've never sat down and had a beer or a conversation with either alpha or beta amylase, and I'd be shocked if the scientists you have either. I must admit it's a little odd relying so heavily on something you don't talk to. I mean, I talk to my dog every day, but my enzymes? Yet at 6 a.m. every Monday, we rely on the science of mashing when we invite them into our beers. In this way, they are our mysterious friends. I like to think without them, I couldn't be an artist, but it's curious we've never had a conversation. The artistic brewer in me imagines that enzymes have feelings, but we like to focus on more highly fermentable work at the Lost Abbey. 
In not wanting to hurt anyone's feelings at the brewery, I must award a participation trophy to Alpha Amelies for the work he won't be doing. I suspect it might go something like this if I had to channel my little league coaching voice. You know, Alpha, our brewers have been leaning on you for so long now, but I think it's time we let Beta run point for a little while. He's been crushing everything in sight, and chicks dig the long ball. Don't worry, Alpha, we're not benching you. This is a team sport, but it's Beta Amelies who's going to be the cleanup for the foreseeable future. We really appreciate everything you do, and thank you for supporting the hungry Yeasty Boys. And speaking of voracious eaters, how about Britannomyces? If you invite Brett to the party, it's like someone dropped LSD on the room when no one was looking. Brett is the antithesis of Saccharomyces pastorianus, who shows up wearing crisp buttoned-up shirts and is squeaky clean in a leave-it-to-beaver kind of way. Brett? He's the one rocking the Hendrix-like afro with platform shoes and fermenting things left-handed. He makes his Belgian yeast cousins seem so much more like Lenny Kravitz. They're not as cool, and they're certainly not as amazing. What a funky little thing he is. At work, he's the epitome of bohemian artistry, equal parts, mystery, and enigma. Unfortunately, he's been known to rage against the dying of the light and party way late. He is the occurrence of an ultra-marathoner. Why run 26.2 miles when you have the stamina to go 100 miles? But you know what? He's a friend of mine, and he has been for a very long time. And if I'm going to party, I want him on my team. Why? Because he makes me a much better brewer. End of story, that's why. Let's talk about art, and maybe some isomerization. For decades, we've seen seemingly very little opportunity to color hoppy beers in different ways. There's been a ton of hop chemistry work that's been compiled over the years, and given what I've read, much of it relates to bitterness contributions, oxidative reactions, and the essential oils. But I think we can all agree there's an artistry to hoppy beers. Why is it that combining Simcoe and Centennial during dry hopping brings out layers of citrus and pine in your beer? The scientists will explain there are complex interactions related to varnishing, linalool, caryophylline, and mercine ratios. And the artist will tell you from experience these two hops make citrus and piney beers when combined. And damn fine ones at that. Pliny the Elder, anyone? Yet both of us can agree that these two hops work very well together. As an artist, I've learned that the hedonic sampling can take you only so far. Process controls are the result of scientific applications and they most often yield better beer. This is true for our IPA-style beers, as well as our funky and sour beers. If we want less acetobacter in our wild beers, we must control the pathway and the ability where it's created. So how do we achieve this? Science will tell us we must maintain proper temperature control, mitigate oxygen contribution at filling and racking, and pay attention to selective harvesting and microbial culturing as not to move along bacteria which have turned acetic in their environment. In this way, improvements in our sour production are always possible. Steady improvements, whether artistic or scientific, should be the goal of every brewer. How much improvement relies on science is a complex question. It leads us to an interesting place to start this conversation. Why does an artist need science? My answer would be to improve the likelihood of besting their attempt from before. I feel like we've currently reached a bit of a plateau stage in that much of the science of brewing has been developed and many breweries from the largest down to the smallest have a great sense of the rules that govern our brewing production on a daily basis. We all know how to make better beer because of the, the, the work that our colleagues before us have done. But there will always be new artists marching to their own drums whose work will cause processes to be re-examined and new strategies developed. That's just the nature of the beast. 
I couldn't have produced some of the beers that we have over the years without learning the rules of science in order to break them. In doing so, it allowed for greater artistry through the progression of flavors and improvements in the beers. But ultimately, I had to take some chances and swing for the flavor fences based on some guesstimates. Hopefully, they were well-executed guesstimates. For in my head, I thought I had, sorry, for in my head, I had thoughts, but in my mind, I did not possess all the answers. I'm gonna go back to my baseball now, no apologies. Two of the greatest left-handed hitters ever played the game of baseball called San Diego Home. In 1998, Tony Gwynn co-authored a book called The Art of Hitting. This is moderately fascinating, as in 1971, Ted Williams had penned a slightly different version of a similar tome known as The Science of Hitting. I guess that begs the question, which one is it? Maybe it's like baking and cooking. Baking is a, baking, baseball is a quirky sport. It starts off mono a mono, with a pitcher 60 feet, 60 inches, 60 feet, 6 inches away. The pitcher holds a spherical shaped object that is held together with stitches, thus rendering said sphere to have magical powers due to the imperfection the laces create. It is the pitcher who starts the process of putting the ball in play. His place of business is the mound, which is always elevated precisely 10 inches above the ground. The batter possesses a stick known as a bat with which he will attempt to swat hit and place the ball back in the field of play. The pitcher can be short or tall. He can be right-handed or left-handed. The batter can be fat or muscular and his bat light or heavy. The sport is also played day or night, rain or shine. Games are opposed at sea level all the way to mile high stadiums. And the sheer number of variables that come into play are mind-boggling. These appear on the surface to make it seem that science is back, I'm sorry. These appear on the surface to make it seem that hitting is actually a science. Yet the best hitters in baseball maintain a sense of calm, enshrouded in their sole job being to see the ball and hit the ball. And that doesn't sound very scientific, if you ask me. As baseball fans in San Diego, we came to learn that Tony Gwynn was one of the biggest students of the game. He reviewed each at bat using VHS tapes to ensure he was able to break down his swing and the way pitchers attacked him at the plate. In this way, he was demonstrably a student of the game. He had tools and instruments of measurement that he relied on a daily basis. In this setting, he changed the way that the game of baseball was played. He practiced his art by applying studious attention to detail. It was a very soft science. He wasn't keen on velocity or revolutions of a curveball leaving the hand of the pitcher. But he was chiefly interested in patterns, predictability, and gaining an upper hand so he could practice his artistry at the highest level. See the ball, hit the ball, right? This is exactly why brewers need each of you in this room to assist them. They need help in finding patterns and replicable results. I think every one of us in the room can agree there are some very strange beers being made these days. Quite rapidly, we have entered a new era of crazy beers. Many are being brewed by new startups, operations operating without the safety net of a lab, all the way up to the top of the pyramid and the old guard with their world-class brewing facilities doing massive amounts of quality assurance. Stop and think about this for a moment, if you will. Since Pasteur isolated single-cell organisms, brewers have worked to keep their beers as free from contaminants as possible. Science and brewing has always equated to clean beer. But today, we have kettle sours being made with yogurt cultures, some breweries producing pastry beers, seemingly hell-bent on raising the glycemic index of every Instagram follower out there. And lastly, we have hazy IPAs being brewed. 
Where once clarity was regarded as the mark of exceptional craftsmanship, now we confer this craftsmanship on 12-day-old double dry hopped beers using 10 pounds of hops per barrel that look like pitches of yeast I used when I was a home brewer. But everybody is juicing, and you are the team doctors like the dope riddled years of the Tour de France. Just like them, you're being tasked with getting those beers to the finish line. As an aside, I'm with you. The artist in me thinks these are without a doubt some of the ugliest looking beers on the planet. And the scientist in me, I said it, the scientist in me, can't even fathom making a beer with such a short shelf life. What I find fascinating about these beers is that your roles really haven't changed. The artists have just become incredibly more emboldened and now each of you is being asked to work tirelessly, again, to find stability and predictability in a sea of imitation in what on the surface appears to be an utter disregard for the science of brewing. But, without a doubt, there is science in these explorations, and the solutions to stability for these exceptional hazy beers will come out of the conversations, the very conversations that you all have in your daily lives. Because as I can tell, science never stops searching for the answers. Maybe brewing has entered our cubist phase, and our understanding of brewing perspective has changed during our lifetime. It's possible. I still maintain that the role of brewing scientist is to confirm for the artist things are going to be okay. So just remember, one of those artists will always walk into a production meeting stating that he or she might want to add something like, I don't know, let's say glitter to a mirror. This will lead the scientists in the room to cringe at the very thought. Somehow, before being convinced by sales that it will taste great, be on brand, and cause no issues out in the real world. Because that's what you guys do. You guys make sure that things go from imagination to delivery. I'm not even sure how you people sleep at night. I really don't get it. I, I can't fathom having people walk into your offices and ask you to do some of the things that you're being asked to do. It must be really scary working with people like myself. But at the end of every day, even the artist relies on science to confirm that no one will die from drinking that great new beer. So I ask for your attention one last time today, and this is my takeaway. I became a successful artistic brewer because I chose to embrace science as a means of overcoming my artistic failures. It became obvious to me as an artist, if you want to be the best, you must learn to appreciate that there is always more than one way to accomplish a task. And if nothing else, alcohol will always be a solution because science tells us it is one. Thank you. That was Tommy Arthur live from the Brewing Summit in San Diego, California. Yeah. <laughs>